Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 106, Generous Gods. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Jesse and Sid. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Last time, we discussed the supreme god Eeyore and his followers, who were probably the upper echelons of the Whariwānanga. Today, we're going to discuss the lower ranks of Atua that were under the Big Six, and talk a little about how Māori interacted with these gods from the material plane. Something we have alluded to but not really talked about in depth is the idea of the hierarchy of the gods. I've mentioned that Eeyore was supreme and that there was also the departmental Atua who had other gods under them, but like most aspects of Māori culture, Europeans tried to categorise this into neat little boxes when they probably shouldn't have. Most sources refer to the different levels in the hierarchy as ranks or classes, but all of them agree that there are four ranks of gods. The top two are pretty easy. The first rank is Eeyore, all on his own as the supreme god. And the second rank is the departmental atua. That's Tane, Tangaroa, Tumatoinga, and all those guys. What we've been referring to as the big six. Underneath them, in the third rank, is what is called the tribal gods. Uenuku, Maru, and Kahukura, if you're familiar with them. A lot of these gods were invoked during times of war, but there were many that were all about the arts or cultivation. While the third rank had Atua known across multiple hapu and iwi, the fourth rank are the family gods that are restricted to a group of related people, so a fano or possibly a hapu. This ranking system is probably not how Māori split or viewed their deities, but for our purposes, it does make it easier to chunk out how we talk about them. Just know that it doesn't necessarily reflect reality. What's interesting is that these ranks don't just split the gods based on their relative power to each other, but also by how active they are in the mortal realm. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say it splits them by how active Māori were in giving them veneration. Eeyore hasn't been heard from in a very long time, and the Big Six don't really involve themselves in earthly affairs, but they do enact punishment on those who break tapu or annoy them. These two also don't have an aria, a sort of earthly divine aspect. Essentially, no one knows what they look like, but there is some writing around Eeyore looking like rays of light across the sky. The other two ranks can be seen, or at least mostly perceived, on the mortal plane. The third rank have proper aria, like the rainbow or meteors, and are known to be involved in high-level mortal affairs, like war. The fourth rank aren't exactly perceived on Earth in the same way, but they can be communicated with more readily than any of the other ranks, and 
since they are family gods, they tend to be pretty active trying to protect people related to them. The family gods in particular tended to be tipuna, and was a way for ancestors to give advice or influence the outcome of various situations through the people that contacted them. Māori believed that the Big Six don't have a huge amount of interest in the lives of mortals. However, their ancestors, whom they sacrificed to in a similar way to the bigger gods, did have a great interest in ensuring that tapu wasn't broken, as well as ensuring their descendants prosper. So they keep a watchful eye on the living. The spirits of the dead tended to only concern themselves with those they were related to, so every whānau had tūpuna they could call upon to aid them, as well as those who they needed to be wary of should they break tapu. More significant spirits, like those of famous ancestors or great war leaders, were said to look over the whole tribe. In particular, they would help them in battle helping to direct soldiers, to embolden them, give them strength, as well as give advice or warning to the tohunga present. It wasn't uncommon for younger and less experienced soldiers to get fearful prior to battle, which was said to be a condition of a harmful spirit within them. In such cases, the family tohunga would speak a karakia and request a family spirit to enter the person and expel the evil one. Sometimes, the person who had done the rituals to contact the ancestor would go with the towa, the war party, and help out with command on the field of battle, occasionally taking on more of a leadership role than even the rangatira themselves. The fact that these atua were tūpuna, or sometimes even deceased children, does somewhat stretch what you might call the traditional definition of the word god, which is what the te reo term atua is normally translated to. Best acknowledges that the term atua is actually used in reference to many different powerful entities, from gods to demons, ghosts and spirits. I'm not sure how accurate this is in modern parlance, but it was used prior to European arrival to refer to a range of diverse entities that Westerners wouldn't necessarily refer to as gods or deities. That's what Māori called them though, so that's how we are going to refer to them as well. The slight exception to this was the personifications of animals, rocks, trees, natural processes and such were generally called matua, which means parent. Further complicating matters, the big six are sometimes described as tipuna rather than atua. This depended on the context that they were being invoked in though, especially since Tu, the Atua of war, and Tu, the Tipuna of man, were considered different aspects of the same god. In addition to the spirits of the dead slash Atua only being interested in people related to them, or of the tribe they are from, they generally won't extend their protection beyond the bounds of their rohe. Some families would have small carved images in their homes to allow the atua to inhabit them when called upon. 
These items weren't subjects of veneration themselves, but were more seen as vessels for Atua, or as a method of communication with them. So these gods were the ones that most people had experience with, as the main requirement to get in touch with them was being related, as well as knowing the correct ritual or karakia. In other words, to give them a ring, all you had to do was know their number and how to operate a phone. These gods could also watch over their mediums by warning them of danger, tell them prophecies, and otherwise make sure that the human was looked after. Obviously, this protection was somewhat contingent on offerings being made and tapu being respected. As well as people, family Atua would guard tapu places, such as burial sites. Sometimes Ariā they took on was a lizard, which was associated with disease, decay, and fero in general. So it was a good deterrent to those who sought shenanigans. Other popular Ariā for ancestors are a mantis, hare, gourds, kaka, owls, trees, ponds, and all sorts of other things. Objects could also be seen as being a medium of an atua if they possessed a lot of mana, mostly the big six, with some of that mana being derived directly from the atua themselves. These items were often used for various religious purposes. To be clear, these items were not ariā, and were something slightly different. This connection to tipuna was, and still is, predicated on the spiritual relationship with the whenua, the land. What made someone tangata whenua of a place was their ancestral connection to it, in that their forebears had been born, lived, and died there, which is a rather gross oversimplification, but you kind of get the idea. To be in touch with your Turanga Waiwai was to be in touch with the land, which in turn was to be in touch with your ancestors. And I really feel like I should stress here, just because your Pākehā and your grandpappy came here in 1814 fucking whatever, doesn't mean you have the same connection. Marae were often named after ancestors. In a sense, the marae meant to signify the body of the person, indicating the importance of both the building and the ancestor. Whakapapa was extremely important, not just in practical matters, but its structure was used frequently by Māori to understand the world around them or things that couldn't easily be explained, such as the formation of the universe, or how certain natural processes came about. In so doing, much of the way Māori understood the world was personified or anthropomorphized, such as the many third-rank atua that personified various animals, rocks, or natural processes. For example, Ikaroa was likely the Milky Way, Punaweko is the father or personification of birds. Te Arawaru is the origin of shellfish. Tamata Uria represents lightning, and so on. 
These gods tend to not be considered the children of Rangi and Papa, either being descended from the Big Six or being created by Eo for some sort of purpose, which is most often the case for gods that fulfil some sort of role, like Teku Watawatata, who is the guardian of the entrance to Rarohinga. Demons or evil spirits that cause possession, disease, strife and things like that were also considered to be part of the fourth rank. Generally, evil spirits would cause these due to makutu, black magic, which was performed by one individual against another individual, or a person breaking tapu and pissing off a god. One such type of evil spirit was that of a stillborn child. When a child was stillborn, it would need to be buried by a tohunga with special rites, else the spirit would torment the parents by entering an animal and attacking them or pestering them. Best describes one case where a child was buried beneath the roost of a tame kaka, who from then on caused them no end of trouble. Atua Toro, who seemed to fit somewhere between the third and fourth rank, were the spiritual messengers of humans, those sent out to seek information, explore, visit people, or to convey information. In one case, a member of a towa sent his, quote, familiar spirit known as Taweka, end quote, to do some reconnaissance. Since it came back, it was deemed to be a good sign. You see this a few times where animals are described as being a kaitiaki, guardian of a person, and the person uses them to help with various tasks. Other cases have them acting as guides to people travelling in the form of stars or comets or even meteors that burst overhead to indicate where an enemy force is. Other warnings of danger from an atua could be something in a dream, thunder, the cry of a bird, a tree falling, or in one case, a star that represented a guardian atua being in a particular position that indicated danger, warning his people that they were about to be attacked. Which they were the next day. Best claims that the Tonga who made these observations were mostly just quote-unquote warlocks, taking advantage of natural phenomena occurring by claiming it was them who did it. Best also makes an interesting comparison between the ancestor worship of this fourth rank to the veneration and worship of saints in Catholicism saying that it is also a form of ancestor worship, and in fact are essentially the same as family atua. Saints are venerated as quote-unquote inferior deities, they are active in human affairs, and regularly called upon by humans, which is pretty much what the family atua are as well. While the second rank Atua were known across the Pacific, and the fourth rank were mostly known to their Fano and Hapu, the third rank were specific to the regions of Aotearoa. That is to say, people in Tafanganui Atara wouldn't necessarily share the same third rank gods as people living in Tamaki Makaro and certainly wouldn't share them with other Pacific cultures, who likely had other gods that filled a similar niche. 
Some of these Atua were known to multiple iwi as some of these gods related to the people from specific waka. Some early European writers thought that the third rank gods were just elevated humans, but that isn't exactly the case. Though some could be described as that, the idea is a bit more complicated. Instead, this rank is mostly filled with personifications of various species, items, or processes in nature. As mentioned, the people who communicated with family gods didn't need too much experience. However, calling up the tribal Atua did require some specialist knowledge that perhaps one or two people in a family might have. Naturally, talking to the departmental gods required even more specialised knowledge and training, and of course Eo was reserved only for a select class. One of the natural phenomena that these tribal Atua used as an aria, or perhaps personified, was the rainbow. Rainbows actually have a few personifications, such as Kahukura, Uenuku, and Haire. Each is similar, but has specific areas that they tend to be called upon, such as Uenuku more being a war god than the other two. In fact, seeing a rainbow behind your towa was seen as an indication that victory would be assured. If seen in front, it was generally a much worse sign. If the towa absolutely must keep going, even if Uenuku tells them not to, they must not go under the arch, but make a detour around the rainbow. Kahukura's job was basically as Māori weatherman, particularly in relation to when it would rain. His possibly bigger claim to fame, though, is that he helped guide the Takatimu waka from Hawaii to Aotearoa. Other duties Kahukura has are some influences on the cycle of life and death, he can banish demons and sickness caused by evil spirits, and he acts as a guide to travellers. Haere seems to be three brothers that become rainbows, but Best isn't sure how, if at all, Māori contacted them. It seems that each of these rainbow gods could be described by colours and variation in the rainbow, but Best doesn't elaborate as to what those variations are. It seems he wasn't able to find out. Tupai, another third-rank Atua, is associated with lightning, and, quote, he it is who occasionally slays a man during a thunderstorm, end quote. Other personifications of lightning are Tama Tauria and Hine Tauria, the latter being the daughter of Tane, and known as the Lightning Maid. Hine Kapua, the Cloud Maid, was also a daughter of Tane, whereas Tamata Uria was a son of Papa. Mataho is associated with distant lightning. Tafaki, who we've talked about previously, is also closely linked with lightning through his footsteps, and to Moriori, he has sometimes been referred to as the Atua of Thunder and Lightning. Tunui Ataika, along with Maru and Tuhinapo, is a personification associated with the protection of pa and tapu places. These gods were popular in the Bay of Plenty, 
but both Tanui and Tuhinapo were also said to be guardians of a pa in modern Seatoon in Wellington. When this pa was built, a rock was buried at the base of one of the posts of the wooden wall that went around the settlement. This was the Modi, basically a place where the gods could reside. Tunui was also the guardian of Farekohu, a very tapu cave on Kapiti Island, where the bones of high-ranked individuals were placed. Tunui was sometimes known as a flying star, which possibly means comets, and was known to be a messenger or to be instructed by Tohonga to do various tasks, even going so far as to be sent to kill Rangatira. One chief even apparently saw Tunui as a comet and knew it was coming for him. Generally, comets were seen as bad tohu, and often when one was seen, people would assume someone had died, but the specific message or intent of a comet could be inferred from a variety of things, like the position in the sky or the direction of its tail. What's interesting about how these different ranks interact is that the lower two ranks are able to cross departments. That is to say, they weren't always serving one particular atua of the big six. They could interchange depending on what was going on. This was especially important since the big six don't seem to have an active role in shaping the actions and destinies of humans. That job belonged to the third rank. For example, Tumitoinga is the god of war, and his approval was needed for any towa to be successful, since war was his department. If you wanted to mess around in his house, you needed to make sure you got the thumbs up from him. But Tu is essentially the manager of war. He's not the one actually on the tools, so it was the job of tribal atua, like Uenuku, to do the actual work of helping humans, such as telling them if their plan would succeed, or to sway the outcome of battles through their human tohunga. This leads into another interesting idea that a lot of European writers struggled with when trying to understand Māori culture. The Christian god is generally seen as pretty benevolent. He has a hand in earthly affairs and is usually thought to want the best for everyone. That is not the case for the Māori pantheon. That's not to say the gods are evil, which is what many Europeans thought, but rather some of them, specifically the big six, are mostly ambivalent towards humans. And the only time they do is when we're in their departments doing stuff. So if you're out and about, cutting down trees or hunting birds, Tane Mahuta expects that you will give the proper respect to him, not violate tapu, and give him appropriate sacrifice, such as the first bird caught. But kind of outside of that, he doesn't really mind what you're up to. If tapu was broken, called hara, or otherwise you got on the wrong side of him, he would enact punishment upon you. 
usually through removing divine protection, rather than any sort of active effect. This is also reflected in how Māori treated their atua, because you might have noticed that throughout all of these episodes, I have been very careful not to use the word worship, because that's not exactly what Māori did. They never worshipped or venerated their gods, at least not in the Western sense. Best describes it more as placation. But even that word isn't quite correct for what Māori were doing, since the rituals, karakia, godsticks, and other such practices were usually to enlist the help of the gods, not to try and ward them off, as the word placation might imply. The way Atua were contacted, slash placated, slash employed, was either by offering material goods, or by offering more immaterial things, like reciting a karakia, or performing some sort of action or ritual. Offerings could be large, such as huge bounties, or potentially human sacrifice, all the way down to small morsels of food, such as setting aside a small part of a meal every day. If it was one of the big six that was being offered to, usually the offering would be something within their department. Offerings could be made for basically any reason. To help, hinder, protect, ensure a good harvest or fishing trip, ward off sickness, victory in battle, guiding when lost, and so on. But the general idea is that Māori were offering something to their atua to get something in return. In that way, it was more reflective of the concept of utu. The gods were said to eat the essence of foods offered to them, rather than the food itself, which was eaten by a tohunga after being cooked in separate fires or hangi that were considered tapu. Polak describes people travelling long distances in the northern North Island carrying a bag of food specifically for offering. They would tie it in a smaller bag on a tree just before going to sleep in an area, giving it to the local quote-unquote dryads. This was also often done in the morning, and in some cases, if food wasn't available, a lock of hair was used instead. These were offerings to the local atua, probably a third or fourth rank, that looked over the area to ensure that they were properly respected, and didn't cause them any issue while travelling, like bad weather. Best describes this as being the fako rite, which was a common practice when someone was travelling through an area that wasn't their own, and as such, they were unfamiliar not just with the terrain, but were also unfamiliar to the gods and spirits of the area. This would ward off any bad things that may want to harm them, and also placate the gods, meaning that they would be protected should they accidentally break tapu unknowingly. Once they returned from their trip, they would need to lift this protection. The Foucault rite worked by cooking some food, all travellers eating a portion, and then the rest would be carried on their belt. 
Interestingly, some gifts were offered to Fedor on occasion, which Best finds odd as to why Māori would prostrate before an evil god and not a benevolent one like Eor. Though he adds that Fedor is clearly more active than Eor, so everyone was aware of the former's existence, especially since Eor was far too tapu to even consider giving gifts to. It's also unclear whether gifts were being offered to Fedor to make him remove disease from someone, or if it was more related to getting him to help with Makutu. I did just briefly mention it, and although we have talked about similar topics before, I feel we need to go over this a little bit again, just so we're clear. Human sacrifice, although it did occur, was pretty rare, which Best himself does admit. Though he does seem to think that cannibalism was rife, which it also wasn't. Human sacrifice could be used as part of a straight sacrifice for divination, as an offering to an atua, or to add some mana to an event. Usually, human sacrifices were slaves, which were in turn usually war captives from other iwi. If no slaves were available, or they didn't want to use the slaves they currently had, a towa might be assembled to go get some, or a dog could be used in their place. As you might expect, it was favoured to try and find a person for sacrifice that wasn't related to you. Kinslaying was generally pretty frowned upon. But sacrifices of that nature were not unheard of, usually only used in desperate times. Just like the first kumara dug up or the first fish caught, the first kill in battle was dedicated to Tumatoinga, and sometimes combatants would race ahead trying to secure the glory of the first kill in battle. In all these cases, the heart played a key role in the sacrifice. According to a member of Ngāti human sacrifices were made mostly for five distinct reasons. One, when a new whare was built and they wanted to ensure the prosperity of those inside, as well as the stability of the house itself. The sacrificed would sometimes be buried under the main po of the whare, acting to protect those in the house. A stone, lizard, bird, or similar could also be used for this. Two, when a waka was finished. Again, this is similar to a whare, in that they were sacrificing to protect the vessel and give it luck on its endeavours along with wanting to make any tanifa they encountered help them in storms and such. For one and two, human sacrifice was only used for very important houses and waka. So a rangatera or a riki's house, or a marae, or a wakatoa. Tamati the fisherman with his wife and kids didn't warrant a full-blown human sacrifice when they finally got on the property ladder. Three, tattooing a high-ranked young woman. This was meant to enhance the mana of the woman and give the event some gravitas. 4. A funeral feast. 
This was similar to three, to enhance the mana of the deceased and give the funeral some gravitas, as well as possibly so that the deceased has some attendance in the next life. 5. Avenging a death. If a relative had been killed by another iwi, they would often seek utu in the form of killing someone from the iwi of the offender. In the case of 3 and 5, the sacrificed person would often be eaten. Human sacrifice depended on the iwi though, and so could be done for different reasons, such as piercing the ears of a child of high status, construction of a pa, for victory in battle, divination, during the period of mourning with the deceased to help crops grow, and many, many others. Again, I should stress, human sacrifice was rare, and the reasons for doing so were varied and not universal. As part of that, in all cases, it was not taken lightly, and only used in the highest form of sacrifice for only the most prestigious of occasions. To finish up, I want to talk briefly about some Māori artistic depictions of gods, because what we find is that they didn't tend to make carvings or other depictions of lower atua, only human ancestors. Carvings of ancestors in Marae were often mistaken by Europeans as idols to worship the gods. The exceptions to this rule were the Big Six, who were sometimes shown in carvings, though those were rare and only had small depictions made of them. Such as the figures used to represent Rongo in the gardens, and god sticks, small handheld depictions of gods that were used to communicate with them. These god sticks, tiki or tikiwananga in te reo, were shaped in such a way that represented their host god best. Tumatoingas were perfectly straight, whereas Tafirimatias had a corkscrew shape and Tane Mahuta was straight with a bend in the middle to represent the growth of trees. These sticks had one rounded end with the other end being slightly pointed to allow it to be stuck in the ground. By Best's time, there weren't any of these items left, though we do have quite a few of the other kind which represent humans and the third and fourth rank of gods. These had faces on one end, and when not in use, these were kept in papafakairo, carved boxes. Depending on what the tikiwananga was being used for, it could have harakeke draped over it with red kaka feathers, human hair or bone attached to it, and be painted with red okra. These items would be used as vessels to communicate with Atua, usually by way of having them inhabit the god stick, but sometimes if they were travelling, a tohunga's tokotoko would be used as a vessel or communication device to a god instead. Next time, we will look at the practicalities of religion. So far, we've talked about more ethereal matters. But how was religion being practiced on the ground? How did this belief translate into real-world actions of ritual and karakia? What was the Tonga's role in all of this? We will answer these questions and more. 
If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.